What an awesome, amazing God we serve. There is no question about it. There's nothing too difficult for this God, the great I am. Let's pray one more time. Father, we come to you in the great name of Jesus. And we are asking this morning, my Father, that you would turn our attention upon you, the source of our help. Father, that in the moments that we have together, that you would cause our eyes to gaze upward to see your glory and to be more aware of your presence than anything else. Father, we are asking that in the name of Jesus, that you allow your word, my Father, to embed itself so deeply into our lives that we are not just hearers, but that we become doers of your word. And we ask you to do this for the honor and the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is my favorite time of year. Um, I love Christmas for a lot of reasons. I love the lights, um, love the presents, love the food. But most of all, I love the fact that there's not anywhere you can go, there isn't anything that you can do without hearing a Christmas carol announcing the birth of the Son of God. It's like Christian radio and music everywhere for just a few weeks and the name of Jesus is being spread in so many different directions and that is always a blessing to me because God is going to make his name famous in our generation and in our time. If you have your Bible and I hope you have a hard copy Bible with you or at least you have uh, a device that you can use, I'm going to read Psalm 121. And then for the next few minutes, I'm going to make some commentary on this psalm. Psalm 21 is a part of a collection of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. They start with Psalm 120, and they go all the way to Psalm 134. These psalms were meant to be read or sung as a collection or as a unit. Each psalm, I believe, carries with it a description of a part of our journey as we move on with Jesus. And I don't know if you've discovered it or not, but walking with Jesus is a journey. I don't just say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life, take one step and I'm there. Now, I am immediately saved, absolutely, but the outworking of that salvation in time is certainly a journey. And so Psalm 120 through 134, while they're called the Psalms of Ascent, they were sung by pilgrims as they went up to Jerusalem, probably for the three feasts of compulsion, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. They were probably sung during those times and sung collectively as a group on their way up. That's what Psalm of Ascent means, on your way up. Now, it always sounds good to be on your way up if you're talking about promotion, money, prestige, position, or whatever. But this is on their way up a mountain, on their way up a treacherous path, on their way up to a place that would be fraught with possibilities of danger and harm, on their way up where they could slip, stumble, and fall. It was going to be a difficult journey. But how many of you realize this morning that our walk with Jesus is oftentimes filled with moments of difficulty? Moments where what we see around us does not help us and we have to reach by faith to touch the Son of God, to keep on that journey. It always reminds me of that song, I have decided 
to follow Jesus, and I will not turn back. That's a statement of commitment and a statement of conviction. I have decided to follow Jesus. It doesn't matter what storms come my way. It doesn't matter how difficult the path becomes. I have decided to follow Jesus. I may fall 99 times. I'll get up 99 times. And every time I get up, I'll keep on following Jesus. That's what the Psalms of Ascent are really all about. The first Psalm of Ascent, Psalm 120, the psalmist basically says, help get me out of here. But isn't that where our journey always starts? We become so uncomfortable with where we are. We become so miserable with the life that we are living that we look up and cry out to God, save me, get me out of this place. There used to be a fine gentleman by the name of Dr. Richard Dobbins who would come almost once a year and speak from this pulpit. He's recently gone home to be with the Lord, but a famous phrase or a phrase that Dr. Dobbins made famous in my heart was, we will remain the same until the pain of remaining the same exceeds the pain of change and then we'll change. Psalm 120, the psalmist cries out, the pain of staying where I am exceeds the pain of leaving. So now I'm going to step out in faith and confess my faith in Jesus and move on with him. But Psalm 121 follows Psalm 120. We don't have to go on our journey with Jesus many days before we find ourselves in difficult moments. And that's just where the psalmist is. If you found it, I believe it's going to be projected for us if you're watching online. Read this out loud with me because there's something that happens when you open your mouth and you speak the word of God. Psalm 121, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. I want to back up to verse 3. He will not allow your foot to slip. Now, I want to join Psalm 121 with Jude, verse 24. Jude only has one chapter and 25 verses. So Jude, verse 24, simply says this. Now, unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. This message today, I'm calling it, Now Unto Him. In 1952, there was a woman by the name of Florence Chadwick. She was a swimmer, a marathon swimmer of sorts. You have here a picture of Florence. She had already swam the English Channel from England to France and broken numerous records and then swam from France back to England 
breaking even more records. The first record that she broke going both ways is that she was the only woman who had ever done that to date. The second record that she broke was that she had done it faster than even her male contemporaries. Now, Florence had this passion for swimming long distances. After having swam the English Channel, she decided that she wanted to swim from the California coastline all the way to the island of Catalina, about 22 miles. Now, she carefully plotted everything out. She carefully put all of her plans together. She had reporters there. She had camera people there. She had two lifeboats so that a lifeboat could flank her on either side as she made this swim. She even had her mother in one of the lifeboats to be one of her cheerleaders. She was ready, and she had done everything to prepare for this 22-mile swim. Now, I've gotten to swim and play in both the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. I'm probably far more familiar with the Atlantic Ocean than the Pacific. The Atlantic is on our eastern seaboard. It's warm, especially along the southeastern states of the US. It is a very warm ocean, and you don't ever have to worry about getting into the Atlantic and being shivery cold in the summer. Now, the Pacific is a different story. It's on our west coast. It seems to me that the Pacific Ocean is always cold, even in the summer. Now, the Atlantic Ocean is relatively calm along our coast, but the Pacific Ocean can get turbulent and contrary. As a matter of fact, the Pacific Ocean can make some waves so large that it can be a part of surfing competitions. Now, when Florence Chadwick started to make this swim, she took all those things into consideration. She knew it would be cold. She knew it could be contrary. She knew that there would be some undertoes and currents that she would have to contend with. She was ready for all that. But when the day of the swim came, something happened that she wasn't ready for. She stepped into the water, and there was a fog that had come over that part of the Pacific that was so thick she could not see her hand in front of her face. She could make her strokes, but she had to do it blindly because she couldn't see. The only way that she knew that she was going in the right direction was because of the boats that were flanking her. This woman started to swim one hour, three hours, five hours, stroke after blind stroke, eight hours, finally ten hours, stroke after stroke, unable to see. She couldn't, she couldn't see where she came from. She couldn't see where she was going to. She couldn't even see the lifeboats that were flanking her. She couldn't even see her arms in front of her as she made the strokes. After 10 hours, she stopped and said, bring me in, I quit. Her mom tries to encourage her and says, Florence, you're close, keep stroking. And she says, I can't, I quit. When the reporters interviewed her, they asked her a series of questions. And at the end of this message, I'll tell you what those questions are and how she responded to them. But the point I want to make with you today is that it seems to me that for the last 12 months, we've been swimming in a fog. It seems to me that we, not just as a nation, but we as a world, have been swimming in a fog. We keep thinking things are going to clear up 
And we'll be able to see where we're going. We'll be able to see the next step. We'll be able to see the next destination. But we don't. Because if one fog begins to clear up, I don't know how it's working in your life and in your household, but when one fog clears up, another fog rolls in. And it seems as though every day when I get up, in spite of how I feel, I have to do what I call soul or self-talk. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. That's what I mean by soul talk. You may not feel like it. You may not want to. Circumstances and situations may not lend themselves to that, but you have decided. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me. There have been days when I've gotten up and I have said to myself, you are going to put one foot in front of the other. You are going to walk through this day. You are going to exalt the name of Jesus and you are going to confess faith in him whether you can see it or not. One month, three months, eight months, almost nine months, and still there's the fog. As I've been going through the Psalms of Ascent, this psalm profoundly spoke to me. And I pray that it speaks to you this morning. The person that wrote this psalm was traveling from his or her home to Jerusalem. And wherever that was, it was going to be uphill. Because when the people of God go to, Jer- go to Jerusalem, it is always up. Because Jerusalem is always up. Let's go up to the house of the Lord. And then they rose and went up to Jerusalem. It is always upward. That's a life lesson that we should all allow to be inscribed upon our hearts. As we journey with Jesus, he never takes us down. Our sin and poor choices take us down. Jesus always calls us up and takes us up to where he is. This psalmist would have left home and the familiar And now when he turns around, he can no longer see home because he's too far removed from home. Or maybe the fog of life has so surrounded him that he can't see where he started from. Emotional fervor has diminished. Every parent that's ever taken a vacation in a car with their children will understand this. At the beginning of the trip, there are songs There's great joy and there's laughter, but 30 minutes down the road, are we there yet? And when that doesn't work, I need to go to the bathroom. And then when that doesn't work, I'm hungry. Or if none of those work, stop the car. I don't feel so good. We all know that taking a road trip can be anything sometimes but pleasant depending on who's around you. The emotional fervor that started this pilgrim's journey has begun to diminish. I know for some of you, in the beginning of your walk with Jesus, you were filled with joy, you were filled with fire, and filled with passion, and then life happened. And then more life happened, and the fogs rolled in, and the emotion began to die down. I think of Abraham God spoke to Abraham and said, take up your son, your only son Isaac, and go up to the mountain that I will show you. Abraham got up first thing the next morning. This is Genesis chapter 22. He got up the next morning and started the journey. It may have started 
with an emotional fervor and passion to be obedient to the Lord. But somewhere during those three days, the emotion wore off, and it was faith that got him there. Church, I look at you this morning. The emotional fervor and fire has worn off for some of you. The pandemic has worn old and has grown tiring for you. This stay in shelter and isolation has gotten to be more than you can emotionally handle. But I tell you this, what started with emotional zeal and fervor will be carried through by faith. Where you put your trust in the Lord. It's not about how we feel. It's about what we believe and who we believe in. This pilgrim's emotional fervor has probably diminished. They can't see their starting place, and they cannot see their destination. They're at a place that I call in the in-between. Now, we understand that because as Christians, that's where we live. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. According to the book of Hebrews, we are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. We are in this world, but we are not of this world, which makes us a people of the in-between. We are not yet where we are going to. And I've got good news for you this morning. We are not yet what we are going to be. Hallelujah. The sun is set on this pilgrim, and they're in the middle of nowhere, probably with little to no light. And so the pilgrim whether it's a single person or the group collected, says, I will look to the hills. I lift up my eyes to the mountains or to the hills. Hills throughout Scripture represent a number of things. The hills or the mountains can be a place where they can hide, a place that will offer them cover and shelter. Hills or mountains can also be agencies of provision, It would be very much like our social system or welfare system. Hills and mountains also represent government and governmental institutions and political institutions. None of these things in and of themselves are evil nor bad. But the pilgrim says, I'm in trouble and I need help. And the first place I looked to was the hills. And I couldn't find help there. But the pilgrim doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, I, look unto, I lift up my eyes to the hills, but where does my help come from? Because you see, what you look to consistently will ultimately become what you worship. What we look to consistently will ultimately become what we worship. Church, we cannot afford to look to anything nor anyone other than the Lord. If we look to people, if we look to institutions, the finest and best institutions around, if we look to them, they ultimately will let us down. If we place our faith in them, we will ultimately be offended because they cannot always give us that which we need. So the proclamation of this pilgrim, I look to the hills, but where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Finally, this person is looking to the only one who really can help them. And he doesn't just say, my help comes from the Lord and leaves it there. He says, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and of earth. 
five times this exact phrase, maker of heaven and earth, is found in the Old Testament. And three of those five times are in the Psalms of Ascent. I think that the writers of these Psalms is trying to tell us something, trying to commun- communicate a truth to us. When we are on this journey with Jesus, we are going to encounter fog, storms, trouble, circumstances, situations, fill in the blank. And when we do, we look up to the Lord and we are reminded that he is the maker of heaven and earth. God doesn't promise to prevent difficult situations and circumstances in our life. What he does promise to us, though, is that when those events do happen, he will keep us in it. He doesn't keep us from trouble. He keeps us through trouble. There has been a popular mentality over the last couple of decades that if we walk closely enough with the Lord, we won't see trouble. If we walk with enough faith, then we won't ever have any difficulties. Well, either I've never had enough faith or there's something terribly wrong with that thinking. Because ultimately, in this life, we will have tribulation. And when tribulation comes, I know this, God will keep me in that moment of tribulation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 takes us back to God as creator. God's very first expression of himself, revelation of himself, is in these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, if we don't get that theological conviction right, then no other theological idea nor event will ever fit. You can argue about premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, in other words, I can't pronounce. But if you do not understand that he is the maker of heaven and earth, then nothing else will matter and nothing else will ever really fit. It all starts right there. From these four words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Four theological principles can be drawn from that statement. Or that idea. These are four guiding principles that will help us to understand why this psalmist tells us that in our journey of life, it's God that we look to. Not anything nor anyone else, but it's the Lord that we look to. The first principle is simply this. God is eternal and existing prior to creation. See, God is not a created being. He existed before creation. Creation is in God and from God. He is the source of all that exists. He's the one who said, let there be, and there was. Whatever it is, whatever fog we find ourselves in in this moment, it has a time stamp on it. It has a beginning and it has an ending. It has an expiration date. God doesn't have an expiration date. He is eternal, existing prior to creation. Whatever fog we find ourselves in, at some point in time or in eternity, it will have to go because it will not last as long as God does because God is eternal and existing prior even to creation. Second theological truth, God is infinite. He's not bound by the things of earth nor heaven. Time and eternity both exist in God. 
Your trouble, your problem is not eternal. Whatever it is, it is not eternal. So I can say, as I start the aging process, I can say to some aching bones and joints, you're not eternal. You're not going to last forever. You're not going to outlast God. Whatever trouble, whatever tribulation you find yourself in, physically, mentally, spiritually, know this, child of God, it will not last as long as God, because God is infinite, and he is not bound by the things of earth nor heaven. The third truth that we learn from these words, God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Your problem's not all-powerful. It has the power that you give to it. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that's too difficult for our God. In the book of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah, Abraham's 99, Sarah's in her early 90s, they are both too old to have babies. And yet God says, this time next year, you'll have a son. You'll have a son of promise. And Sarah laughed, and Abraham questioned. And the angel of the Lord said to them, Is anything too hard for God? It's impossible with man, but there is nothing that's impossible with God. I don't know, again, what you're facing, but you don't know what I'm facing. And I have to tell myself daily, nothing is impossible with God. It's impossible with me, but we're not dependent on me. Hallelujah. It's not impossible with God. The fourth truth, God is independent and self-existent, relying on nothing in creation. You see, God wants you. God wants me, but God doesn't need us. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. If we won't praise him, what happens? Even the rocks cry out. In Genesis chapter 3, Moses is doing his job, going about his business, and he sees something. He sees a bush on fire. Now, in the desert, to see a bush on fire is probably not a big deal. Some of them contain gaseous resin, and with that intense heat, some of them would spontaneously burst into flames. What caught the attention of Moses is that this bush was on fire, but it wasn't consumed by the fire. Because you see, God didn't need that bush to fuel him. He's self-existent. God doesn't need for us to do anything for him to be God. Because he's God all by himself. He is the existent, the self-existent one. I want to be that person that's on fire with the fire of God, who has my heart touched with fire from off of his altar. I want to be that person, and I can be a carrier of his fire without being consumed. Because you see, burnout is the result when I try to do it in my own effort. The man or the woman that's on fire with the Spirit of God doesn't burn out. Because God doesn't consume us. He is an all-consuming fire, but he doesn't need us to burn. Church, hear me. Somebody's close to burnout because you're trying to do it yourself. Somebody's close to being consumed by circumstances and situations because you're trying to figure it out on your own. 
But I have good news for you today. He who created the heavens and the earth, the maker of heaven and earth, is your help. And he is your very present help in time of need. If we fail to understand, to truly grasp these opening words of Genesis, and now repeated three times in the Psalms of Ascent, we'll find ourselves on a journey, all right, but maybe not the right one. He is the maker of heaven and earth. That is the beginning of our journey with God, to know that he is almighty, all-powerful, eternal, infinite, and self-existent. There's a personal element in Psalm 121. The second person singular pronoun, for those of you who are grammar nerds, and I kind of like that myself. As a matter of fact, he's not in here, so I'll throw him under the bus. Pastor Brent, I call him the grammar Nazi, and he says right back to you, but we can get into an argument over a comma, and it's really a lot of fun. So for those of you who love grammar, The second person singular is used eight times in this psalm with just eight verses. It's personal. When when the writer of psalm says you, he's speaking to you as a single individual, not as a collective group, not you all or y'all, as we say in the South, but to you personally. Because see, when you need help, whether you need help as a part of a group or you need help in isolation, God hears you as an individual. That's one of the beautiful things about this God that we serve. We may cry out to him as a company, as a corporate people, but he hears our individual voices. When we sang this morning, Tim Bryant, he heard your voice. When we sang this morning, Janie Bartlow, he heard your voice. He hears us as individuals. Larry Adley, he hears you. You may cry out in a company, but he hears you because he is God and he can do that. God is a personal God, and when we need help, we need a lot of personal help. We all have moments of fear or distress. We cry for help, maybe as individuals or a group, but when we're on this journey with Jesus, God may hear us as a group, but he will speak respond to us as individuals. He sees you, he hears you, and he cares about you. Your cry does not go past the ears of a loving father. Now, we don't know what the threats were that the psalmist was being faced with. He doesn't tell us. But in Jude, verse 24, we find out exactly what the threat was. We know exactly what was going on in the book of Jude with this first century church fellowship. I wonder if Jude borrowed from Psalm 121 when he wrote verse 24. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Let me just put you in context with Jude. He's having to deal with some difficult people And they're threatening the viability of this young church. For 24, 23 verses, Jude spends the majority of his time talking about what these people are doing. And here are these people. Those who have wormed their way in with a hidden agenda. 
Those individuals who have come into the fellowship of the saints, saying, I am one of you, and I'm here to help you, and I'm here to be of help and to be a blessing. But in reality, they've got their own agenda. They've got their own pitch, and they've got their own thing that they're trying to do. Then there are those who defile and reject authority with slandering words and actions. These are individuals that will say, yeah, that was a great service, but I'm not so sure about the pastor. Did you hear what they said? And begins to take things out of context. This reminds me of Absalom standing at the gate. This is one of David's eldest sons. Absalom had an offense with his father that he never got over. And so now Absalom has decided that instead of submitting himself to his father, instead of letting things go, he's going to take over the kingdom. And this is how he does it. He stands in the gate. The gate is a place of authority. The gate is a place where everyone would come for news, where people would come and bring their problems and look for someone to judge and to resolve their problems. And Absalom set himself up at the gate. And here's what he'd say to people. If I were king, you wouldn't have that problem. If you'd let me run this thing, I'd fix it. I know that they, referring to those in authority, have their agenda, but I'm one of you. And we can work this out together. It sounds like a political campaign. But it's in the book of Samuel. Rejecting authority finding opportunities to bring slander and assault against those men and women who are laying their hearts and their lives on the line every day to lead the people of God. If it were just those two groups, that would be enough, but he doesn't stop there. Those who speak out on things they do not understand as if they were experts for the purpose of stirring things up. The fourth group, those who are self-centered and self-serving. And the final group, those who are grumblers and complainers. That's what Jude was facing. That's what this little church was facing in their attempt to walk through and navigate their way through all the persecution and all the things going on in the first century. You see, it wasn't just persecution on the outside. This was persecution and trials on the inside. If Jude had stopped with verse 23, that would be enough reason to set my Bible aside and cry out to God, get me out of here. If this is how it's going to be, get me out of here. There's got to be more. But Jude doesn't stop there, and neither does the psalmist. Jude turns everything around with these few little words, now unto him. Get your focus off of this. And look up to the one who can really help you. Now unto him. In Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20, Paul picks up on this idea. And he says, now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Now unto him who is able. Your problem may be overwhelming. That's when you need to look up and say, now unto him who is able. 
in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now unto him who will last longer than your problems. Now unto him who is bigger than anything you could ever go through. Bigger than all my problems. Bigger than all my fears. Bigger than any mountain that I can or cannot see. That's the God that we serve. And all we have to do is look up. Now unto him. I am persuaded, and this has been tried and tested in my life. When I get into that moment of fog, like Florence Chadwick, where it's one stroke in front of another and I can't see my hand in front of my face. That's when I just need to stop for a minute and look up and say, now unto him who is able. Now unto him who is worthy. Now unto him who is king, eternal, the maker of heaven and earth. You see, when I do that and I start, it's like a floodgate that opens inside of me and my focus is no longer on the fog my focus is on him and I'm able to take one more step it's not about feelings it's about conviction and it's about faith it's about determining in your heart and with your life he's bigger and he is the help of my life now unto him let that ring in your ears. Let that reverberate in your heart. Because church, we've looked at everything around us and it has absolutely overwhelmed us and we could drown in it if we don't stop. We've got to look up and say, now unto him who is able to do, to be, to sustain me, to keep my foot from slipping. There's an old movie called The Man from Snowy River. And maybe some of you have seen that movie. Those of you who are in my age range know that movie. There's one scene in that movie that's absolutely breathtaking. He has to go down almost a 90 degree incline on a horse. And there's rocks and boulders and everything. There's no way he could walk down it. There's no way he could traverse that terrain, going downhill, much less uphill. And there's one beautiful scene where this cowboy is in the saddle on this horse that he knows and he trusts, and he just lets go. And the horse takes him down that incline. When, Paul, when Jude wrote the book of Jude, he used a Greek word picture for stumble and keep. And together, to keep you from stumbling, it creates this visual picture of someone on a horse on a very rocky, very dangerous terrain. A terrain that could not really be traversed by foot. But they're on a faithful steed. And as long as they stay on that steed, they're going to make it. They could never make it on their own. But as long as they stay on that steed, they're going to make it. Jude 24, he's telling the people of God, things are rough. There's fog and there's storms and there's stuff everywhere. But if you will stay, if you will stay, surrender to Jesus, 
If you will stay in a place of trusting him, take your hands off the rain, he'll get you to your destination without slipping and without stumbling. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. Church, take another breath. He is faithful. He is powerful. And he is good. When Florence Chadwick had surrendered that swim in a moment of defeat, she did later go back and swim successfully. The reporters were all around her. Were you too tired to go on? And she said, I was tired, but I wasn't that tired. Uh, was, it, was it the water? Was the water so cold that it made your body ache? And was it the pain that kept you from making it to your destination? And she said, no. It was cold and I was hurting, but it wasn't anything that I could not have pushed through. And finally, with great frustration, they said, then what caused you to quit? And she said, I couldn't see the destination. And I just gave up. Church, we are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Right now, in this moment, things may look grim on a number of fronts, but I challenge you, stop looking at the fog and look up now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. I do not marginalize nor minimize the moment that we live in but I do not marginalize the power and the omnipotence of the God that we serve. He is able. And he is our help. We have no other real genuine help except for the help that comes from the Lord. I look up unto the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Would you stand with me, please? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now unto him who is able. Hallelujah. Now unto him who can keep us. Now unto him who can do exceedingly and abundantly all that we could ask or think. Now unto him who is worthy, the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Unto Jesus, the maker of heaven and earth. We cry out to you for help. And we know, my Father, that you hear us. That you see us. And you will give us the help that we need in this moment. In Jesus' great name. Amen.